Welcome to Falling Through the Cracks. Feel alive and thrive with Dr. Rebecca Risk. Do you ever feel that even though nothing seems seriously wrong and you pass all the medical tests, that you still feel that your health, pain, and fatigue are completely out of control? It doesn't have to be that way. Listen to the tips and suggestions given on our program today and take back control of your health. Now, here is Dr. Rebecca Risk. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Falling Through the Cracks. Today, I'm talking with Dr. Jen Gunter. She is an obstetrician and gynecologist with nearly three decades of experience as a vulvar and vaginal diseases expert. Today, we're discussing her book, The Vagina Bible, The Vulva and the Vagina Separating the Myth from the Medicine. So, Dr. Jen, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, So, what inspires you to put this book together? Well, you know, I'd been debunking this online for some time at the point when I decided to write the book, maybe, you know, six years, and I'd been writing for different outlets and thinking, gosh, I must be everywhere. How do people not not know all this stuff? And uh, I had a day in the office where I saw about five women in a row who all had myths and misconceptions about their bodies. So maybe they heard it from their mom or a doctor or a dude or a friend or read it online or a magazine. And each time, you know, when I corrected them and explained what was really going on or what the real medical treatment would be, each one of them said, how did I not know that? How did I not know that? And I sort of sat, sat there and thought, like, how did you not know that? Like, how did you not know that? How is this possible? We live in this day and age where every single person has a pocket computer with them. They carry the library of all things with them. And yet people, we can't get the, inf- the right information out there. And so I just thought a lot about that communication gap. And I thought about all the predators online and the misinformation and the bias and the advertising. And I thought, you know, women need a textbook and I'm going to write it. And so I did. Well, well, good for you. Um, it, it's actually quite interesting. I didn't plan this, but last week I interviewed uh, Jennifer Block about her book, Why Healthcare Needs a Feminist Revolution. And, and you know, it's not something you, you specifically mentioned, not that I caught anyway, but um, what I'm, I'm gathering it, um, from all these shows that I've done is that we don't have the information that we need about our bodies. It's lacking in science. It's lacking in, um, in knowledge for ourselves. We're not taught things. And and we definitely need to to bring that forward and have more understanding about what happens because I I think we we don't know Are we like a the lay person yeah I mean I'll push back a little I think that that in in medicine we know most of it certainly there are always we don't know what we don't know um, but I think that the the communic- there's a big communication gap between what is medically important for everybody to know um, and how to get that knowledge out to people. So that, I think, is important. I mean, you know, I think I'm a runner, and I always think, man, if I understood more how my knee worked uh, and more about, you know, knee pain and more about more about the way an orthopedic surgeon knows about the knee, would that make me a better runner? So I do think that, that we have these gaps in so many areas of medicine. It's not just about the vagina and vulva. However, when then you add in sort of societal shame about talking about the reproductive tract, about societal shame about sex, that even makes it harder. And the other thing, too, is it makes it more vulnerable for predators to step in, right? So if medicine is not taking the lead and having these conversations because they're afraid to talk about sex for some reason, which I don't understand why, then it should not surprise us that other people who don't have good agendas have stepped in to to pick up the slack. And so I think the biggest issue is communication. Well, um, you know, I, I know when I, when I was in school and I, I studied biochem and then I read a, a book um, by Tony Weschler about, um, you know, your how our bodies work. I actually learned things in that book I didn't learn in school. Um, you know, just how I, I think putting it together with the rhythm of how my body worked was something I was never taught in any class. Um, and, and that may have changed now. This is a long time ago. But, but I felt like there was a gap missing and I had my friends read the book um, just so that, you know, and they were as amazed as I was because we didn't know that, um, you know, our cervical mucus was supposed to be a certain way and we didn't understand those things. And I think that that should be, you know, part of like the grade six sex ed class that, that I had, or maybe it was, I don't remember, but I certainly wasn't as aware of it at that time. 
Yeah, I mean, I think so that, you know, the, the working, the general workings of your body is, is really an educational thing, and that is something that schools should be doing a better job at, um, or teaching biology in schools. Um, you know, so much of what we teach sort of sex-wise is simply focusing on pregnancy prevention, right, or STD mm-hmm. prevention, and it's not focusing on, um, you know, how things work and why they work a certain way. Um, and then certainly, you know, when, when you're studying a subject in class, they're not talking about, you know, these things for your body, they're talking about it for, you know, how we're going to learn to, you know, to study or to, to um, advance science. But certainly, I mean, when I was, you know, sitting in, in my medical school classes, I'd be like, oh, wow, that's how that works. Oh, wow, that's how that works. Um, and so, you know, so the information is, is, you know, is very interesting and there are many people who want to know about it and there's also people who don't. So, you know, making it available, though, I think is, is definitely should be a requirement. I think that um, people are always helped with factual information. Um, there's never a time where facts are bad. Yeah, I definitely agree. Now, um, the first chapter in your book, um, right at the beginning, you're talking about the female anatomy. Is this something that you find is necessary for you to educate your patients on, or do women tend to understand what's going on down there? No, we absolutely need it. I mean, I have patients come in every single day who say they have a vaginal itch, and what they mean is their vulva vulva itches. Um, You know, this inability to sort of describe anatomy parts correctly is, again, directly related to not educating people about their parts. And I think it's really really important for people to know exactly what contributes to what from a sexual pleasure standpoint, from a pain standpoint, you know, so, so then they're able to have the words to communicate if they have a problem. I mean, well, not knowing that your clitoris is a super large structure underneath the skin is might lead women then to to not know why, for example, being touched somewhere gives them pleasure, and they would want to understand that, or it might give them ideas to experiment with more things. So, um, do you think that sometimes that that misunderstanding can also lead to a misdiagnosis? Because if you say you have a vaginal itch, you might get diagnosed with yeast infection without a, an exam, um, which does happen. Um, so do you think people might end up taking medication they don't need or with a diagnosis that doesn't suit them just because of that? Yeah, you know, that happens That happens all the time. Misdiagnosis is incredibly common because people don't stop and say, so what exactly do you mean? You know, um, if you tell me that your ear hurts, I need to know, is it on the outside, like where um, where the pinna is? Is it where your ear was pierced? Is it just inside the canal? Is it deep inside? Like, those are all different parts. And if one thing hurts differently, it would make a, a difference for diagnosis, and that's the same for the vulva and the vagina. They're really different parts. And when women come in and say they have a vaginal itch and they think and it's really a vulva itch what happens is they end up getting misdiagnosed over the phone over and over again but they also misdiagnose themselves we know that 50 to 70 percent of women who self-diagnose as a yeast infection are incorrect right so so the the information that they have is incorrect now how that happened is it because they're mistaking their vulva for their vagina? Is it because so many things cause itch that um, that they're missing out all the other things? It's hard to know, but but we do know that diagnosis over the phone for these conditions is highly unreliable, and I'm sure that communication gaps um, in knowing sort of what's going on where is a part of it. Well, and I, I think, I um, you know, in Canada, I find sometimes it's it's about the speed of the appointment as well, um, you know, and people are, are often, okay, you know, they'll kind of self-diagnose and their doctor will trust that self-diagnosis. It doesn't happen all the time, but I've, I've you know, heard these stories and, and you know, that mm-hmm. that's unfortunate because it, I think that should be confirmed, especially before you take an antibiotic or a medication, you should know what's going on. Yeah, I mean, in my mind, it's completely unacceptable to diagnose this over the phone. Uh, there are absolute people have tried for years to develop telephone triage for diagnosing yeast infections, and it, it has not been successful. As opposed to urinary tract infections, where we have really highly reliable telephone triage. You know, if you call in and tell me that you have acute onset of um, of needing to go to the bathroom all the time, that when you go, you have a hard time getting your stream started. It hurts like crazy when you when you're emptying your bladder, and you're peeing blood. 
you know, chances are you got a bladder infection. But we don't have that kind of telephone triage for yeast infections. And I believe that it's dismissed because it's considered a minor woman's problem. And what's the harm of treating over the phone? Or what's the harm of using it over the counter? But there is a lot of harm. We have a huge rise in antifungal resistant yeast. Every week I see a woman who has an almost untreatable form of yeast in her vagina and we have to concoct some um, completely non-formulary option to treat this yeast. And 25 years ago, I never saw these strains. Mm. Uh, you know, so uh, we have the same yeah. issue that, that we have with antibiotic resistance with antifungals. Yeah, exactly. So can you tell us what the vagina and the vulva are? Sure. So the vagina is the tube on the inside that connects your cervix with the outside world. And uh, the vulva is the part on the outside where your clothes touch the skin. And the part where the two sort of overlap because the cells from the vagina transition and become eventually gradually become the cells of the vulva. So in the area where the cells are kind of partly vaginal and kind of partly vulvar is called the vestibule. And uh, the great thing about the, uh, the vulva is it's filled with specialized nerve endings for touch. And then the, you see some of the clitoris, the glands on the outside of the vulva, and the rest of it's beneath the skin, um, beneath the labia and wraps around the urethra. Um, and uh, I always tell people to think about the clitoris like a butterfly. Um, and there's, there's two parts of the wing on each side that are kind of hanging down, and the head of the butterfly would be the clitoris glands. And and so, um, I mean, the the word vulva isn't actually used very often. Um, do you do you know why? It, it, I mean, it, it, most of the time we just say our our parts or our vagina. I, that word isn't even used very often. Um, but vulva, you very rarely hear. Yeah, I mean, in in my office, we say it all the time. Um, so it depends on on where you are. But sure, I mean, but nobody ever said vagina in public before the eighties, ever. Right. Ever. People would have said down there, you're like, even in the doctor's office, women would have got in and non-described their parts. So I think that's a really important thing to understand that, um, that when we're sort of saying, well, why can't we say the word vulva? I was, I mean, I, I was in my twenties and people couldn't say the word vagina in public. You know, you couldn't say it on television. The vagina monologues was revolutionary because people couldn't say those, say that word. Even on some of the morning shows, it's hard to say the word vagina. So, you know, when you, so you, have, it's not just in medicine. I mean, it's everywhere with all of society. And I somehow, finally, people got okay with vagina. But I mean, the, we have these horrible euphemisms because of this sort of patriarchal sort of society. It's everywhere, not just medicine, that prevents people from talking about their normal anatomy. I mean, the, the, the story from Grey's Anatomy is, you know, there was an episode where someone was delivering, I don't watch the show, but I've read about, you know, this part of the episode. And, um, you know, one of the characters having a baby, you know, wanted to yell, stop looking at my vagina. And the, the sort of the producer, or not the producers, but the, I guess the people at the, um, you know, who ran that, uh, that, that uh, channel or whatever, decided the word vagina had been used too much in the episode and needed another word. And that's how, um, you know, uh, JJ came about. And so, you know, if you're talking about the vagina, you need to say the vagina, many times you say it, you say it. No one would make someone come up with a euphemism for the elbow. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, but, and so it's this idea yeah. that it's dirty in our culture to say the words vagina, and it's not, or vulva, and uh, and so that's why you know I was really insistent on having both the words you know on the front of the book. Yeah, definitely. Um, I, I want to uh, touch on the subject, but we're not going to have time for the break, so we'll, we'll get into that. Um, we are going to take a quick break. We're talking today with Dr. Jen Gunter, and we're discussing her book, The Vagina Bible. We'll be back shortly. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. A stain-free clean home is something to be proud about, but it's hard to maintain when you're using cleaning products that don't work well or take forever to use. Q Carbona, a household brand that has turned their decades of cleaning experience into products that get the job done fully, quickly, and easily. When I first heard about Stain Devils, my stain removing game was changed. Think about this. If you have a chocolate stain, it doesn't make sense 
to treat it with a formula that removes wine because they are chemically different. Knowing this, Carbona created specific stain removers for specific stain types. Genius, right? Beyond stain removers, they have highly efficient products for your laundry, carpets, and washing machine. My co-host Oliver, who is a Chihuahua Cross, wants to remind you not to forget about the pet stain and odor remover. Want to start living your life unstained? Shop Carbona.com with code FTTC for 20% off your order. Happy cleaning! Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You are listening to Falling Through the Cracks with your host, Dr. Rebecca Risk. To reach the program today, please call in to 1-866-472-5792. Again, that's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email directly to Dr. Risk. The email address is anantacalgary at gmail.com. Now, back to Falling Through the Cracks. Feel alive and thrive. A stain-free clean home is something to be proud about, but it's hard to maintain when you're using cleaning products that don't work well or take forever to use. Q Carbona, a household brand that has turned their decades of cleaning experience into products that get the job done fully, quickly, and easily. When I first heard about Stain Devils, my stain-removing game was changed. Think about this. If you have a chocolate stain, it doesn't make sense to treat it with a formula that removes wine because they are chemically different. Knowing this, Carbona created specific stain removers for specific stain types. Genius, right? Beyond stain removers, they have highly efficient products for your laundry, carpets, and washing machine. My co-host Oliver, who is a Chihuahua Cross, wants to remind you not to forget about the pet stain and odor remover. Want to start living your life unstained? Shop Carbona.com with code FTTC for 20% off your order. Happy cleaning. Hi, everybody. Welcome back. Today, we're talking with Dr. Jen Gunter about her book, The Vagina Bible. So um, you you were kind of getting there, and I wanted to um, give us time to talk about this. Um, One thing that that you talk about your book is um, uh, vaginal shaming. Can you talk about that? Yeah, so I think we have a pretty significant culture of both vaginal and vulvar shame. I mean, vaginal shame is all about um, women being told they need to prep or clean their vagina, usually for men. Uh, you know, and that's why we have all these douches and wipes, intimate wipes. I mean, it fascinates me that, that we sell, well, we not we, because I don't do it, but that companies sell um, wipes for women's vulvas and anuses, but no one seems to care about wiping the scrotums and anuses of men. Um, so that's, an, you know, men are not shamed in that same way that the this idea that their parts are dirty or toxic. So that's been around since pretty much the beginning of time. Uh, but we also have some new, uh, you know, new players in the market. So the wellness industry is certainly in on that. Um, you know, promoting something like vaginal steaming is simply also telling women to be ashamed of their parts. They need to be cleaned. Um, it's a different, it's wrapped up with a different message, but, but the same, the same core harm is there. And then we have this rise of cosmetic surgery on the labia. You know, I see young women on a regular basis now worried about how their labia look. And 20 years ago, that never happened, ever. Um, I it, This is really a, such a new thing. And I think it's really tied to sort of plastic surgeons advertising it and many women's magazines talking about it. You know, young girls now call say that they have an Audi vagina if their labia minora are longer than their labia majora, which is absolutely ridiculous. I mean, half of women are built that way. That's nothing to do. It has something to do with your vagina. It's your labia. But yet they feel shamed. They feel shamed that their their labia, something that's part of their sexual response cycle, is large. But we, we don't shame men that way. Can you think about a culture that would shame men for having a big package in their jeans? I don't think so. 
No, no, it's funny. Um, it's it's funny how we we do this, and I, I, I wonder where they're even getting the shame from because it's not talked about on TV, and and uh, perhaps social media and just something that I've missed because I'm, I I think I'm too old for a lot of the social media. But but you know they're they've got to have that feeling coming from somewhere that to feel that way. Well, you know, I've thought a lot about it, and there was actually a study last year which uh, from plastic surgeons who felt that the pressure was from, you know, the look in yoga pants, that, that women could see the outline of their labia in yoga, pan, yoga pants. And I don't, I don't think that's correct because when I was a teen in high school in the 80s, uh, we all wore jeans that I can only describe as being painted on. Mm-hmm. That was the trend. Um, yeah. Like you had to lie down on your bed to get them zipped yeah. up. You could not breathe. And it was so uncomfortable. It was ridiculous. Yeah. And you could see people's, and I like to call it labial cleavage because camel toe is pejorative. It's labial cleavage. Love it. You could see your labial cleavage in jeans and no one was worried about getting them trimmed so it looked sleeker. Like that didn't enter anybody's mind. In fact, I'm pretty sure we dressed that way to show people, right? So I think that um, it's this messaging that you should be, that it, that it, that you should be ashamed if that's how you look. That's the difference. We we didn't feel shame for dressing like that then. And now women, for some reason, they're told someone has decided they can make money off of telling women that their their vulvas are quote quote not perfect. So well, I just think that it's this. We have this industry now. Yeah, and and not only are are we somehow getting this before we go to the surgeon's office, but there's surgeons who are are giving into this as well and doing this surgery, um, even though it's not necessary. I mean, it's, it's cosmetic, and I suppose we do this to our noses and and other things. But you know, it, it's feeding into to that feeling as well. Yeah, but if. If uh, if having your nose altered cosmetically changed the way you smell things, we'd be yeah. having different conversations, right? But that's part of your sex. So your labia are part of your sexual response. So that's different, right? And, and you know, if you were if a nose job involved changing the part that actually smelled, I don't think we'd be advertising them in the same way. Right. I would like to think it would be different. So, but in then, what is the messaging that we're telling women that the part of their body that gives them sexual pleasure should be smaller? But that's what's culturally or socially attractive. I mean, that's problematic. And that men, men and young boys make fun of women for how they look for that way. It's like if your sexual partner is making fun of your body parts that give you sexual pleasure, they shouldn't be your sexual partner. Like, that's it. Um, they're, you know, they're a horrible person. But for some reason, this is the messaging young girls are now getting from, from young boys. And, and my personal belief is that, um, you know, because, you know, like 90% of women have been told negative things, young girls now have been told negative things about their vulvas from male partners, that I think that Every image that we see online of a naked or semi-naked body has a very small labia. And this isn't just porn. This is um, uh, Sports Illustrated. This is shows. This is, you know, like I see advertisements for, you know, for underwear. And I think, I can't, I can't get my labia. Who can, who can get their labia in that? So it's everywhere. It's every image looks like that. That's, that's just like every image is of somebody who's a size two or almost every image. So for some reason, advertisers have decided that's what sells. And in the 80s, we didn't see pictures of naked people around everywhere. So nobody was sort of paying attention to it. You know, it was really uncommon. And now the images are everywhere. So I, I believe that's a big part of it. Mm. Uh, yeah, it's uh, really interesting. Now, I, th- I think we can also segue into your um, comments about um, shaving and, and care down there. Um, I, I found that really interesting because actually nobody talks about it, um, it, not in my circle anyway. And it, um, So can you just tell us a little bit about how you feel about that? Yeah, I mean, nobody talks about it, but a lot of people are doing it. Um, yeah. So, so yeah, I mean, it's a body modification. So what's really disheartening is I will have women, and I'll explain to them about their pubic hair, and they look at me with disgust, like there's something dirty, like they assign the word dirty to their pubic hair. You would never assign the word dirty to your eyebrows, 
right? But they both serve a biological function. Your eyebrows keep sweat out of your eyes and your pubic hair is a protective barrier for your vulva. It also probably maintains the humidity in the area. And it may be involved in sexual pleasure because tugging on it pulls on nerve endings. So, you know, if damping and removing pubic hair has risks associated with it, risks of injury, risks of um, burns, uh, risks of ingrown hairs, and there's a theoretical, well, a little bit more than theoretical chance of increasing your risk of getting a viral STD because, you know, it's trauma to your skin, hair removal. So it would make sense if you have fresh trauma and you're exposed to a viral STD that you'd be more likely to catch it makes total sense. So if with that in mind, you decide that you want to remove your pubic hair, it's your body, it's your choice. But that's an informed decision. An uninformed decision is thinking your pubic hair is dirty and should come off, right? And I, I think about that. I mean, I have a son who wants to get his ear pierced. And so we've gone through, you know, what are the risks? What are the benefits? How are you going to care for it? How are you going to feel if you have a complication, even though it's rare? And then once you've thought about all those things, then we'll go ahead and do it. And it's really interesting when I, when I, you know, we, we looked up all the, you know, and the risk's low. I mean, lots of people get the ears pierced without any problems. But once I actually made him think about the risks, even if they're low, he thought, oh, I, I need to think about that a little bit more. And that's informed consent. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I wonder if part of that comes from the idea that it's dirty because um, don't they shave women when they give birth? And so that's an idea that has to be clean in that area. Yeah, I mean, pubic hair removal has a very complex history. I mean, absolutely, there was a time when doctors uh, re- recommended shaving because we thought that hair was dirty and would increase infections. Um, however, you know, we also now know that shaving actually increases infections. So it's it's very harmful in surgery to remove hair beforehand. So um, so that's why um, that's why we don't do it anywhere in surgery. So there's certainly um, medicine has contributed to it, but you know, historically, um, pubic hair has also been um, was a sign of public nudity. So, uh, you know, in in the states, and you know, uh, you know, um, places that wanted to have you know um, strip clubs and things like that, as long as you didn't show pubic hair, you know, in the fifties and sixties, you weren't nude. So, um, so how can you show more and more skin by removing pubic hair? Right. Right. So there's a way to get get around sort of purity laws. And then if you go way back, people used to shave their pubic hair um, because of pubic lice. So, you know, 1400s, 1500s, when lice was a big issue, people would shave their pubic hair. But the problem is, once you shave your pubic hair, now people can see your syphilis ulcers. (laughs) So that's why they had merkins. (laughs) Yeah, okay. (laughs) So it didn't work back then very well. But but then now you see how that's like you know if you know if if the only way to treat pubic lice which sounds dirty and we should never shame people for having a sexually transmitted infection we don't shame people for getting influenza um, people don't catch and give STDs on purpose um, you know but you can see if removing pubic hair was was historically linked with um, preventing a disease you could see how then you would think that pubic hair is dirty right. So, you know, so it's just, so there's a very complex, fascinating history. But yeah, and then, um, and then also people wore Merkins because you didn't want people to think that you had lice and had to shave your pubic hair. Yeah. <laughs> For sure. <laughs> so, um, what, one thing you mentioned in the first segment was that you know people don't talk about sex a lot. Doctors don't talk about sex a lot, and and I think that there there is a lot to talk about. Um, you know, there's if whether it hurts, if it's not the right fit, or if if there is something going wrong, uh, people are ashamed or embarrassed to talk about it. So, how do you approach that with your patients? Well, I mean, all I do are talk about I talk about sex or pain with sex all day because that's my area of specialty. So, you know, I talk about it frankly, and I, I mean, I think that the, the number one thing I wish that all women knew was that sex shouldn't be painful. Um, there's, uh, you know, so much mythology in there. So, first, first of all, everybody thinks that for sex is supposed to be painful. You hear that a lot of time. You know, women are very afraid they're gonna, you know, sex is gonna hurt and they're gonna bleed. You know, two thirds of women have zero pain with their first penile penetration. Two thirds, and of the remaining third, um, you know, only half of them have significant pain. Most of them, it's very mild, which is about the same incidence of women who have pain with sex. 
So meaning if your first episode of, you know, sex is very painful, either it was technically terrible, meaning your partner didn't invest in any foreplay, um, because if you have no foreplay, chances are sex might be painful, or you have a pain with sex condition. And so we think what's happened because of this false belief that first sex is painful and because people can't talk about sex, so many doctors just assume that, you know, you just need to keep doing it so it doesn't hurt. And that's not how it works. If sex is painful, it's a medical condition and you need to see someone to get a diagnosis. I'm glad you're saying that. I've done a a few shows with um, about this topic or with this topic in it, and and I know that there are a lot of doctors that that don't say what you say and um, don't believe the women maybe think that they want to get out of it, and that kind of um, mythology, because that's what I believe it is, is kind of put on women, and and our health isn't always taken seriously in all instances. Well, I think that. the core root for most of that is the inability to have a frank discussion about sex. So, I mean, there certainly actually are times where I'll talk to someone and we'll go through everything with pain with sex or, or libido issues, and then someone tells me that they hate their partner. Well, that's a problem because you're not going to have good sex with somebody you hate. Um, so, so, But if you can't talk about everything and say, okay, so what's happening with your foreplay? What's happening? To, you know, you can't walk through all of those things. You know, if if... If your your part, if your idea of for if you've never had foreplay, if you've only been with this one person, and his idea of foreplay is twist a nipple and stick it in, you don't have a pain with sex problem. You have a mechanics of sex problem, right? You got to mm-hmm. fix that because you need to have more than that to have good sex. So if you can't frankly talk about all of the steps that are happening in the sex, you can't make the diagnosis. You know, is there a nerve pain condition? Is there a skin condition? Is there a mechanics of sex condition? Is there a whole libido, you know, this is the wrong person for you thing? Because that happens sometimes too. And so, and sometimes it's a complex mix of some of those things. But if you don't sort of talk about all of those things, um, you know, you're never going to get to the answer. So um, for the majority of people, I would say it's a medical condition. Um, a small percentage is definitely a mechanics issue um, that the way that they are having sex would, you know, if if you're literally getting five seconds of foreplay and your partner's expecting that he can just put his erect penis in straight away without anything, any touching, anything going on, yes, you will probably have pain with sex. It will probably not be enjoyable and you would not want to have sex like that. So, you know, you have to have these, these you have to have these conversations. Well, and that's important, too, because to um, just tell a woman, oh, you know, it's just what you're doing and not dig deeper and find out if they are that small percentage who's actually having pain with sex um, and then missing a diagnosis of, of a you know condition that's you know probably controlling their lives in some ways. Um, you know, we need to have those discussions. And I think that you're right. Doctors are afraid to say it. But I also think that patients are afraid to say it. It's very embarrassing how have those conversations, um, especially if you feel like you're not being listened to. Well, and I think that because nobody talks about sex problems, everybody thinks they're the only one. So everybody thinks there's something uniquely wrong with them, right? And when I say wrong with them, meaning like, like they're really wrong, like they're broken like nobody else is. And so that's the other harm of never talking about it. If you grew up, if, if in sex ed, when you were in grade seven, you learned, um, just like you might learn in driver's ed, that if you don't wear a seatbelt, you're more likely to die in an accident, and you remember that. So if you learn in sex ed that if the first time you have sex, it's super painful, there's a problem, and you should stop and see a doctor, that would save like, you know, that's when you need that information. You need that information before you even have sex for the first time so then you know if there's a problem. If during sex ed you learned that 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 most people need stimulation as part of foreplay to have enjoyable sex, if you're not getting it, you're going to stop that person and say, wait a minute, this isn't how it's supposed to work. Just like you'd stop someone and say, you need to put your seatbelt on. What's going on here? Well, and I think this is important that you're bringing this up. I mean, I wish we were taught all these things in school. I think there's a, a fear that, you know, if we teach kids these things, they're going to go and have sex where in, in reality, I think that this is information that we need so that our lives aren't going down a rabbit hole that they shouldn't go down. And as you said, if it's painful, you need to stop. Yeah, I mean, I think that... Um 
it's, science tells us it doesn't. So, but getting people who are against sex education to believe that is about as hard as getting people who are anti-vaccine to believe that vaccines are safe. Right. Mm-hmm. So that, cause it's a belief. It's like a religion to them. Um, it's not a scientific, you know, like, like I'm a scientist. If you prove to me that sex ed was harmful, I would say, well, show me the studies. I, I want to know about that. Right. I wouldn't I wouldn't just say, no, 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 no. Put my fingers in my ears. I want the answers. But fortunately, I know that the science says that, you know, sex, you know, quality sex education that covers everything does not encourage kids to have sex. In fact, it actually encourages them to make safer choices, which is what you want to have. I mean, um, uh, my kids had very high quality sex education in their schools in grade seven. I mean, it was really good. And uh, afterwards, I said, so, you know, they're, they're both boys. Where are you, are you more interested in sex or are you less interested? And they both said less interested. And not that it turned them off, but a lot of initial sexual experiences are curiosity. And right. once you have your, your curiosity satisfied, you're like, oh, I mean, you know, and so what happens is we have young women who learn essentially nothing about their bodies in school. Their parents can't really talk to them about their bodies. And their pediatricians have like 12 minutes with them and have to like cover everything, right? So, so who's having these conversations? And then the first time they have sex, whatever, they're 16, 17, 19, 20, whatever age it is. And, um, and they don't know much about the mechanics of sex. So who are they learning it from if they're partnering with a man? They're learning from the least reliable person, a young heterosexual male. Who had the same sex ed that they did that had nothing in it. Right, except it's worse because they think their penis is a mighty sword and it should take, you know, one minute of penile penetration. And because in the movies, because I do this all the time, every movie, whenever there's a sex scene, I count the seconds from when it looks like there's supposed to be penile penetration to when the woman is arching her back and screaming like she's having an orgasm. It's like always like... Three seconds, four seconds. So that's what they think. The thing about sex in movies, and this is all movies, whether you're looking at porn, Game of Thrones, you know, sex scenes in, you know, in regular, every single movie, that it's all about this money shot, and it's all about um, penetration gives orgasm immediately. There's very little focus on foreplay. And what's fascinating is that men seem to think, or a lot of men, seem to think that that's documentary filmmaking as opposed to acting. Mm, Okay. Um, We're going to take a quick break. I'm talking today with Dr. Jen Gunter, and we'll be back shortly. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. A stain-free clean home is something to be proud about, but it's hard to maintain when you're using cleaning products that don't work well or take forever to use. Q Carbona, a household brand that has turned their decades of cleaning experience into products that get the job done fully, quickly, and easily. When I first heard about Stain Devils, my stain-removing game was changed. Think about this. If you have a chocolate stain, it doesn't make sense to treat it with a formula that removes wine because they are chemically different. Knowing this, Carbona created specific stain removers for specific stain types. Genius, right? Beyond stain removers, they have highly efficient products for your laundry, carpets, and washing machine. My co-host Oliver, who is a Chihuahua Cross, wants to remind you not to forget about the pet stain and odor remover. Want to start living your life unstained? Shop Carbona.com with code FTTC for 20% off your order. Happy cleaning. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. Voice America. 
You are listening to Falling Through the Cracks with your host, Dr. Rebecca Risk. To reach the program today, please call in to 1-866-472-5792. Again, that's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email directly to Dr. Risk. The email address is anantacalgary at gmail.com. Now, back to Falling Through the Cracks. Feel alive and thrive. Hi, everybody. Welcome back. Today, I'm talking with Dr. Jen Gunter, and we're discussing her book, The Vagina Bible. So, Dr. Jen, um, what are some myths that you would like to debunk? Well, I think, um, you know, a a big one is that the vagina and vulva are dirty and need to be cleaned and prepped in some way or that they're filled with toxins. The reproductive tract has toxins, and none of that is true. Um, The vagina is a self-cleaning oven. It absolutely needs no cleaning. And your vulva on the outside, the part on the outside, you know, many women manage with just water, but otherwise a, a, a facial cleanser, something that is, you know, no fragrance, that's about all you need. A very mild cleanser. You don't want to use anything harsh, and you certainly don't need to use these so-called intimate wipes. So that would be a big one. Um, I think a, another big mess is that um, the penis is the most reliable way to induce a female orgasm. <laughs> uh, and so, yeah, I know, right? So studies tell us that only about 20 to 30% of women will orgasm from penile penetration alone. And that um, the most reliable way to bring about a female orgasm is actually with your hands, and the second is with your mouth, and the third is with the penis. So, I mean, it's, it's fun to try many things, obviously. And uh, uh, but uh, women should women and and uh, men who partner with women and women who partner with men should know that um, that this myth that the penis is what should be bringing their orgasm is is it's a myth. And uh, if you need a vibrator, totally normal. If you um, if you need manual stimulation in other ways, if you need oral stimulation, all totally normal. Um, I think another one is that everybody's having sex all the time. You know, everything is sold with sex, so you would get that idea. And, uh, you know, then people, you know, uh, when we actually look at surveys, you know, people say that sex is the most important thing in their life. Uh, but in reality, you know, people are, you know, having about maybe six or seven minutes of sex a week, um, which, uh, you know, I probably spend more time looking in my fridge than six or seven minutes. So I think that it's just important to, you know, as long as you are happy with your sex life, that's what matters. Um, you know, you shouldn't be using somebody else's metric for your sex life. I think that's a really important one because I think we do that a, a lot, you know, especially uh, we compare ourselves to other people. We care, compare ourselves to social media, um, how we look, what we're doing. And, and you know, it really, as you said, it's what works for us and what works for our relationship is, is the important bottom line. Yeah, I mean, society and pharmaceutical predators and many predators in medicine um, are very um, sold on this idea of female horniness, right? And that suits a certain, a very narrow sort of, you know, male-centric version of what they want female sexuality to be, right? Like, you're virginal until you're incredibly horny for a man, and then you're just horny for him all the time, just at the drop of the hat, horny. Women are horny all the time. And, you know, their women's sexual response is comes in all different ways. And some women um, may have, a, at some points in their life, have high spontaneous desire. At other points in their time, they might not have high spontaneous desire, but they might have very high receptive desire, meaning, um, in, I'm using desire and libido interchangeably here. So meaning, you know, their, their partner sits down and, you know, they're not inter- you're not interested in sex, you're sitting down, but your partner sits down and he sits next to you and he snuggles up next to you. And then, you know, maybe he strokes your arm a little bit. And then you start thinking about the last time he stroked your arm and how nice, what happened afterwards. And so then maybe you start thinking that maybe you would be interested. Um, some people decide to have sex with their partner because they want to feel close. And then after they start kissing and cuddling, then then the physical arousal kicks in. You know, um, I think it's important for people to know that this sort of high state of female physical arousal, which we sort of label as sort of horniness, is really a societal construct. And um, and we do a lot of disservice to women when we start, um, when we promote that idea. And that's how the pharmaceutical industry gets to sell products, right, that on this sort of false metric of female horniness all the time. 
Mm. Um, well, definitely. I think it's more than the pharmaceutical industry selling products based on on female horniness and, and women, but it, it seems to be widespread in our society. And um, so I, are there any other myths out there that you think are important? Oh, um, I think that uh, a, another um, important myth is that, you know, tampons are not toxic, you know, there's this mm-hmm. idea that tampons are basically death sticks for your vagina, uh, and they're not. Um, you know, the incidence of toxic shock syndrome is about one to two per 100,000. It's very low. I mean, it's basically like the risk of a lightning strike. So, I mean, I'm not saying that risk doesn't exist, but women do far more dangerous things every day than putting a tampon in their vagina right? Just crossing the street in most major cities is pretty risky. Think about the number of pedestrians that are killed every year crossing the street. But we don't say, oh, women, don't cross the street. Don't cross the street. You could get killed. Um, you know, so you have to think about, you know, what are the pressures about tampons? And it's this idea of women putting something in their vagina. It's this sort of virginity, um, purity taboo. And then also the idea that organic tampons are safer for you. And that's absolutely not true. Those companies have done zero studies to back up any of their claims. And I personally think it's pretty predatory to make a claim without any any backup. So one thing I found interesting in your in your book was what the hymen is actually for. Do we understand? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, well uh, we do understand, just nobody wants to hear it um, in society. So, the, yeah, so the hymen is there to protect your vagina when you're incontinent as an infant, right? So, you know, you're dripping urine and stool when you're an infant because, you know, again, back in the day, nobody had diapers, right? So think about everything's wet and mushy and smushy and you're sitting in, you're, you're putting the baby in dirt and so there's dirt and urine and feces and if that gets into an infant's vagina, that will cause an intense irritant reaction. So for the first year or two of your life, the hymen's really quite a rigid band that protects the vaginal opening. And then as we evolve, as we sort of mature rather um, and become continent around the age of three, the hymen just starts to get all plastic or pliable and stretchy and takes on different shapes and forms because evolution doesn't care about it anymore. In fact, evolution cares about it going away. That's why sex isn't painful for most women when they have it the first time. If sex hurt, we wouldn't perpetuate the species. Right, so um, so evolution is very much invested in a rigid hymen at the beginning, and then a hymen that basically disappears. This idea that it would be a virginity indicator is absolutely false because. 50% of teens who are sexually active still have intact hymens because it can be very stretchy. And, you know, most women don't bleed when they have sex the first time. So this idea of bloodied sheets and pain proving that you were a virgin, that means that you had sexual trauma. And I think that's a really important point to make is that, you know, even if you do have a, a little bit of bleeding from the first time you have sex, it's usually a few drops of blood. The hymen doesn't have significant blood vessels. So if you're having bloodied sheets, it's because you had sexual trauma. And I think that's a really important point that we're making. What we're saying is that it's not about virginity. It's about sexual trauma. And we're making the hymen, you know, we're holding women accountable to something that in no way or shape or form can be a virginity indicator. Um, And it's a horrible patriarchal construct that's incredibly harmful and shows that people have no understanding about embryology or basic biology. Well, and, you know, traditionally, the hymen has been used, as you said, to to show our virginity and and that kind of thing. And you see all those, you know, um, old Victorian movies set in Victorian times where they are checking the sheets. But I would guess back then, if that was an issue, there would be sexual trauma. Um, There probably wasn't foreplay. And, you know, the the men and women didn't even know each other. And um, but this is what we're also shown on TV. It is that you're going to bleed. It's going to be painful. And so that that kind of sets that myth that that's what's going to happen. And then we're not taught in school that that's different. So we watch these movies as children and adults as well. And we think that that's the reality, how our bodies are built. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it fascinates me, again, that people think movies are, you know, like it's fiction, right? So, but who, defi- who drives that narrative? Who does that narrative serve? It doesn't serve women. Right. No. Um, but yeah, I mean, if if hymen, like, here's the thing: if hymens were really for marriage, like, why do cats have them? Why do elephants have them? Why do horses have them? Why do dogs have them? Most mammals have a hymen. 
Yeah. Well, it also doesn't make sense yeah. evolutionary that we have something that's going to show that we're we're virgins. I'm not really sure that you know evolution cared about that very much because um, that's how evolution we reproduce. <laughs> yeah. Evolution cares about making the most babies possible because up until very recently, more than half of them were going to die. Right? You think about yeah. how high infant mortality was. So evolution cared about getting an infant out, and if that infant survived, then the the mother being able to care for it long enough to get to um, an age when it would be self-sufficient. That's all evolution cares about. So evolution doesn't care about marriage. I mean, marriage is, is actually relatively recent. You know, it's, I mean, if you look at our, you know, time on earth, it's a, it was a social contract for, um, for property to make sure property got passed along. It wasn't anything, to, you know, and the, the funny thing about it is, I mean, if people are worried about, about, um, you know, uh, being the father of a baby, nobody had trouble with infanticide back in the day. I mean, the Spartans threw babies off the cliff if that that weren't perfect. Like, so you know, we've imbued all these sort of patriarchal societal things into the hymen, and basically what we're doing is we're saying, unless you've had sexual trauma on your wedding night, you're not a virgin, which is absolutely just horrific, and that's really the message. So I tell people, hymen are just the hymen is just like baby teeth. You have it for a period of time, and it serves a biological purpose in a specific developmental phase, and then you pass through that developmental phase, and you, you don't need it anymore. So we should be no more judging women on their virginity by their hymen than we should their baby teeth. I, I definitely agree. Now, um, I'm sure that you and I could talk about this forever, but unfortunately, we only got an hour. Um, so can you uh, let us know how people can get a hold of your book if they want to know more? Yeah, absolutely. So you can find my book anywhere on Amazon and um, brick-and-mortar stores. You can um, get links through uh, my website, drjengunter.com. You can get links through – you can find me on Twitter at Dr. Jen Gunter. You can find me on Instagram and Facebook at Dr. Jen Gunter. Okay, well, perfect. Um, I, I want to thank you for uh, joining me today. It was a really informative show. Great. Well, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciated it. Yeah, well, and uh, so everybody today, we're talking with Dr. Jen Gunter, and her book is The Vagina Bible, um, which I think is an overdue book for anybody who has a vagina or who um, wants to know more about one. Um, so you can pick that up anywhere. If you want more information about my story and what I went through to get back to health, you can find that on my website at dr-risk.com. Don't forget to follow me on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Instagram. You can send me an email at anticalgary at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening today. Be sure to make today a great day. Thank you for tuning in to this week's edition of Falling Through the Cracks. Feel alive and thrive. Please join Dr. Rebecca Risk again next Monday at noon Eastern Time and 9 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We'll talk more next week. 